Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 166 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Good to have you back in the seat again this week. Feels good. Ready for fall on the uh, on the horizon. You know, the first day of fall, September 22nd. Really? Is it that late? I looked it up. I always, for me, it's always like when we're in September, it feels like fall to me. NFL starts tonight. NFL starts tonight. I think it's because back in Rochester, it's I think it's the week after Labor Day is when the kids go back to school. So I was like, oh, falls upon us. Yes, it is. So excited for fall weather, though. I am. So, um, yeah, I got college football back, got the NFL back. Good time MLB, of the year. Uh, playoffs coming up. So, yeah, it's a good time of year. It is. So. Uh, before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on September 7th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 0.6% for the month and down 16.5% for the year. The Dow up 0.2% for the month, down 13.1% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 0.2% for the month and down 24.5% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 0.7% for the month and down 18% for the year. The uh, Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 1.5% for the month and down 20.5% for the year. Three-month Treasury rate at 3.07%. That's a jump. Two-year Treasury rate, 3.45%. And the 10-year Treasury rate at 3.27%. Um, big line, uh, headlines, current events from the week. Uh, really, the only thing to note here, Matt, I think, is that the S&P 500 is coming off a three-week losing streak from August 16th highs through September 2nd. Uh, the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500 are down 8.6%, 11.8%, and 9.3% respectively. So I think after you know we tagged that downward sloping 200-day moving average on the S&P 500, combined with Fed Chair Powell's speech at the end of August, uh, definitely had a hand in sending markets lower for the month of August. Yeah, and I have a piece at the very, very end, a piece from August that specifically addresses kind of uh, Powell's comments uh, in Wyoming. And so I'll be talking about that for our listeners. Okay. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had was a tweet by Markets in Mayhem on August 29th. Uh, Jenna will sh uh, throw this chart up on the YouTube video for people that are viewing, uh, but if not, it'll be in our show notes at uh, Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on LinkedIn and Facebook. So it's a chart of um, showing all of the bull and bear markets in the S&P 500 going back to 1933. And the thing that I want to point out here, Matt, is that the average bear market last just over a year 
since 1933, but the average bull market uh, lasts just under five years. Mm. So I think not bad stats. Right. And I went over this with uh, clients on our Zoom monthly market update earlier this week. And I think since bear markets over the past uh, decade, decade and a half have been so short and quick to recover. I think people are conditioned to think that if we get a bear market, we're going to be at all time highs within six months. And that's just not necessarily the case. So going back through history and looking at it, you know, we've had times where, you know, uh, in the mid 19 or the late 1930s, the bear market lasted for a little over five years. Um, we've had bear markets last two years, one and a half years, but the average is one year. And that's very short compared to the amount of time we spend in bull markets. Absolutely. And the other important item to note while you look at this chart is the gains seen in a bull market are significantly more than the losses we experience in a bear market. And that makes sense, right? Yep. If you look at a chart of the S&P 500 going back from 1933 to 2022, it's up and to the right. So that makes sense. And it just goes back to our notion. I know we like to use the term that we're in this kind of two steps forward, one step back type of market. And we use that for shorter periods, but I think you can use that over the longer period too. And then this is just one of those instances that we're in the one step back. And I really think that every bear market that we go through is the one step back because the gains we experience are so much more in bull markets. Well said. The other Wall Street adage is, you know, instead of trying to time the market, it uh, timing the market, it's time in, in the, the market, market right? right? And I think the big thing for a lot of people is you go through these periods of correction and people's mindsets are not proper in that after you have such a horrible first half of the year, you do take a lot of risk out of the market. And when you forward look returns on average, and we've talked about this with specific data over the past couple of months, forward looking returns over the next, say, three to five years tend to be pretty, pretty favorable. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to kind of remind people that, you know, when things are kind of on sale, you know, I don't know what it is about the stock market, but people aren't exactly happy about putting money to work. They want to put no. money to work after the gains are in. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's just it, the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And, you know, I remember talking to a lot of people over the last couple of years that are have been waiting for, you know, this fat pitch, so to speak, to to when to buy. But like Step we up always to the plate, baby. talk about, usually Get when your this bat stuff out. happens, that people are always worried that it's going to keep falling further. So the goalposts keep moving. The goalposts keeps moving. So I like that you showed this. Yeah. So it's a good chart, I thought. Um, next was a quote from Morgan Housel uh, on the markets. And Morgan said, calm plants the seeds of crazy. If markets Hama plants the seeds of crazy, it's true. It's the it's a definition of the market cycle, which I, I think is I, great. I'm stealing that. <laughs> Need to get another shirt for you that says that. I like that. If markets never crashed, they wouldn't be risky. If they weren't risky, they wouldn't get expensive. When they're expensive, <laughs> they crash. Same for recessions. When the economy is stable, people become optimistic. When they get optimistic, they go into debt. When they go into debt, the economy becomes unstable. Crazy times aren't an accident. They're an inevitability. The same cycle works in reverse, as depressed times create opportunities that plant the seeds of the next boom. One way to summarize it, nothing too good or too bad lasts indefinitely. I think this is just a real simple 
explanation of how market cycles work. Absolutely. And just people can look back to the most recent example of this was the run in the markets we saw after the COVID crash in 2020 Mm -hmm. to the beginning of this year. That was some of the most calm period of the market that we've experienced in history in terms of volatility, ups and downs. So I just thought that that was, you know, the def- that is the definition of a market cycle. And this will continue to happen over and over and over again, kind of alluding to what we were talking about earlier, that investor behavior never changes. I love that you brought this up because I have a piece on market volatility in a little bit. And what a lot of our maybe newer viewers and listeners don't know is, you, know, you and I don't compare notes before, you know, we do the mm-hmm. podcast. We come up with our own content independently. Sometimes it meshes absolutely perfect, and sometimes it's completely different. You are going to love one of my topics in a little bit. (laughs) Okay. So listeners and viewers, remember what Mark said there about volatility, and I'm going to bring it up here in a minute. Yep. So lots of good stuff uh, coming from Morgan Housel. Last thing I had was kind of just a fun, interesting uh, topic that I saw on Twitter, Matt. It was from Trevor Scott on August 21st, and he tweeted, due to inflation, a Canadian pizza chain is offering customers forward contracts. So they say this is genius. <laughs> this is genius. Keep going. So they say no matter how bad inflation gets, your pizza price will stay the same. You can lock in your pizza costs for the next year. <laughs> I love this idea. So I, the first thing that came to my mind was and I think this was the company is called Pizza Pizza up in uh, Canada. When I see this type of stuff, I always my first where my head goes is that in the, the worst of inflation has to be over. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> this is just like one of those like magazine headline indicators that people try to change things after Abs- the worst have, has already happened. Absolutely. And now people are going to be locking in their pizza rates. And, you know, who knows, two or three years from now, we could be not in a crazy and quote-unquote inflationary spiral that everyone thinks that we're in what a great Um, idea by them so i thought that that was that was just funny because that because that's kind of how you know for people that don't know you know with you know forward contracts and future contracts that's kind of how commodity prices work right absolutely so people like for oil you know airliners lock in a, a price of oil you know a year or two years in advance depending on what the market dynamics are mm-hmm. and now it's just funny seeing this applied to uh to pizza for all the pizza lovers out there oh my gosh that's great Someone was telling me, I was um, at lunch uh, with a friend uh, about a week ago. We were at a pizza joint um, in downtown, and they said it reminded them of a brewery that they have dynamic pricing on their beer. Mm -hmm. And the beer prices, it shows like how much percentage is left in the keg. And as it goes down, the price of the beer goes up. Yeah. I thought it was genius. Yeah, we went to one. We went to, uh, I think it was... God, was it in Grand Rapids? I think we were in Grand Rapids. I was uh, doing a trip with some buddies um, for a golf trip, and we went to one of those. And I think it was called the Beer Exchange. Okay. Where, you know, prices went up and down with the supply and demand, which was really cool. So smart. Phenomenal idea. I mean, what a way to run, you know, run through your product, right? Mm -hmm. Because if no one wants it, it's going to be cheap. You're going to have the value buyers. Yep. It's a great idea. Wonderful idea. Yeah, our next business venture, possibly open one of those up here in Dayton. I think it'd be great. (laughs) All right, you ready for me? Let's go. All right, here we go. First thing, update on rent inflation. Why am I talking about this, Mark? Housing is such a key inflation component to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. 
So this blog post by Bill Mc, uh, McBride from, on the Calculated Risk blog on August 29th caught my eye. This is what it said. September of this year, the apartment list national rent report indicated that the index rose a half a percent over the course of August. That is half the rate of growth compared to the prior month. So this is rents paid? Rents paid, sir. Okay. Yes. This marks a deceleration of a rental market that follows a typical pre-pandemic trend. So now Jenna's going to put up for our viewers on YouTube a chart of this apartment list rent estimate, and it goes back to the beginning of 2018. Okay. This year, rents have risen slightly faster than they did before the pandemic, you're going to see, but significantly slower than they did in 2021. And rent inflation was at its peak, and you're going to see that on this chart. So far in 2022, rents are up 7.2% mark compared to 14.8% at this point in 2021. Year-over-year -year growth has slowed to 10%. That's down from a peak of 18% at the beginning of the year. Now... The next graph is going to build upon this. This is going to be even more telling. The next graph that Jenna is going to put up is a graph showing the year-over-year -year change of Zillow's measure of rental inflation, as well as overlaying the apartment list same measure since 2015. All these measures, our data is through July of 2022, except the apartment list data is already out for August. What you're going to see is these numbers are really starting to come in. The growth rate on these inflations is really coming down, okay? Let me put some numbers behind it. Zillow's measure is up 13.2% year over year in July. That's down from 14.9 in June and down from the peak of 17.2% year over year in February. Similar data for apartment list. It was up 10% year over year in August, down from 12.3% year over year in July down from the peak of 18% year-over-year last November. Why does this matter? What's the bottom line for me? My suspicion is that rent increases will slow further over the coming months as more supply of homes come on the market. This should help inflation data, such as the CPI, should continue to come down. This will put more money in the consumer's pockets and will help the Federal Reserve fight inflation. So I want to highlight this, that I'm seeing data inflation continues to decelerate. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the most important point is that, you know, someone could be like, well, Matt, you know, the inflation is still really high. And yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. But these inflationary numbers take time to get back to baseline. It's not like they're just going to drop like a rock in one or two months you to wouldn't come want down them to, to the because that would rate. highlight further significant stress somewhere else right exactly exactly so yeah it's going to take time for these numbers to come down and it's still going to be inflationary year over year but you know these month over month changes are going to start to come down and again eventually i think that we're going to be in a really good period where you know in my opinion what the fed is doing it's slowing demand and it's kind of working right now, or it at is. least in from what the Fed can control, it seems to be working. Yes. So um, I think this is good for for everybody involved. But yeah, I'm still I'm still in the camp that the worst of inflation is over, and we'll see within the next year if I'm right or wrong. Yeah. Not that it matters. I think for our you know allocation for client portfolios, but my interpretation of it is the the worst of it is behind us. Yep. I mean, my two senses. You know, you we could split hairs. It was sometime in Q2. 
you know, was it in May? Was it in June? We could split hairs on that. But yeah, and it's not it's not just housing prices. It, commodities are coming down. Oil, gasoline, copper, iron, cotton, all well off the highs. The used car uh, prices well off the highs. The used the car eggs. supplies is up. New in uh, auto inventory is up. So all of this stuff is going to help over the next six to 12 months. Absolutely. So. So my next thing is you talked about volatility. I want to put it into context. All right. So Compound Advisors had a note on September 4th, Mark. And Jenna, for our viewers on YouTube, is going to put up this chart and it'll be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. This chart goes back to 1928 and shows for the S&P 500 the highest annualized volatility through the first 169 trading days of the year. Can you believe that 2022 comes up as number 11 wow. on that list? Okay, so that's just insane to me that when you look at it, 2020 was number three, 2009 was number five, 2002, the bottom of the dot-com bubble was number eight, and since 1928, we come in at number 11. Now, here's what's really going to take you back, okay? The next chart that Jenna's going to show is going to show the S&P 500, the number of large down days going back to 1928. And this chart will show the number of days where the uh, S&P was down more than 1%, the number of days in the next column where it was down at least 2%, and even the number of days where it was down at least 3%, okay? So the S&P 500 has declined 3% or more seven times this year. In the last 70 years, the only ones with more 3% down days that we've already seen this year, 08, 09, and 2020. And the reason I like this chart, the contrarian in me loves this mm -hmm. because what follows periods of volatility this extreme mark periods of calm oh it should be very welcomed put me on a beach get me that six pack of corona <laughs> right like like commercial yeah right get me snoop dog next to me okay <laughs> him and i we can talk investments calmness yeah and that's what we've been that's what we've been telling people that we need i think that you know, another thing that I said on our, our Zoom uh, market update with clients earlier this week is, you know, obviously, I always like to give both sides of, of the coin, right? I, I think, you know, what's the bullish thesis? What's the, what's the bearish thesis? And the bearish thesis is we get another unexpected jolt to the global economy that it cannot sustain, yes. right? So we went through COVID. We had this huge monetary stimulus. Uh, we have inflation, you had Russia, Ukraine, you have an energy crisis in Europe right now. It's like if we get one more massive jolt to the global economy, I don't know if it can sustain that. But this chart gives me hope that we are in for some period of calmness, at least for the next 12 to 24 months. The data set goes back to 1928. Not exactly a small data set. No, it's not. So... Um, yeah, very, very interesting. And it's like, again, I'm not trying to belittle the fact of how, how tough 2022 has been. It's been, it's been the toughest investing period, I think, you know, based on my research in the last decade. Absolutely. You know, I think 2020 was easier than this the first three months because it lasted, you know, it was so not, short. It was so short, didn't last a long time. This is the toughest so since been, 08. It's been, it's been tough, but you know, if you look at things, 
you know, the the drawdown in the S and P five hundred reached a little over twenty percent, and now it's at like sixteen and a half percent. So it's like there's been so many worse periods than right now. And this is ranks number 11 on the most volatile, one of the most volatile periods in history. Um, I don't know. It just it almost feels like the market should be down more than it is. Right. All right. So it's interesting you say that because my next two pieces will mesh very well with what you just said. Okay. Okay. Because my first piece is an update on the 60-40 portfolio. Okay. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. So 60 for 60% stocks, S&P 500, 40% bonds, or the Barclays uh, aggregate U.S. bond index. Bingo, my friend. This chart that Jenna's going to put up next is from uh, Compound Advisors. The date is September 4th. It shows going back to 1976, 2022 ranks as the worst start from January 1st to the end of August for the typical 60-40 balanced portfolio came in at negative 13.9%. 02 was negative 9.5%. 08 was negative 6.1%. So again, you know, if, if people's portfolios are struggling year to date, you have the trifecta. You know, you got bond yields have gone up, so bonds are down. Stocks are struggling. Commodities and inflation hit things earlier in the year. It's been a really tough year. Yeah, and inflation. So your cash, your safe cash at the bank is slowly eroding away. Yeah. So my last piece, and this will mesh well with some of the things you were mentioning a couple minutes ago, because this update is from Argus Research on September 6th, very fresh. And it's the last part that really puts things into context for me personally. So I'm going to read this word for word. I'll give you my viewpoint, and then I want your feedback, Mark. Quote, by late August, the U.S. stock market had climbed halfway off its cycle lows, and then Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke in Wyoming. With just an eight-minute speech, the Fed Chair sent the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1,000 points. Stocks had their roughest day since June, when the market bottomed mid-month amid spiking interest rates and peak inflation. We believe Mr. Powell's forthrightness, while painful in the short term, provides investors with necessary clarity on the Fed's intentions and their agenda. While investors dislike inflation and rising interest rates, history has shown that uncertainty and drift from the Federal Reserve leads to worse outcomes. In the past, the Fed sometimes has to turn to restrictive policies in periods of weakness or stagflation. Currently, the U.S. economy is in sound shape and should be able to absorb the Fed's harsh medicine without toppling into a deep recession. We believe strength in jobs and in corporate earnings are two positives against a steep collapse in economic output. The U.S. economy added more than 3 million jobs in the first seven months of 2022 and another 300,000 plus jobs in August alone. Argus is modeling high single digit to low double digit EPS growth for 2022 and 2023. Even as growth is slowing, Earnings are at historical levels, end quote. Yeah, that's I think that's the mind boggling thing for people is that the the job market just remains so strong throughout all of this. I think it's 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 that the fact that I think underneath consumer spending has not eroded. You had some different priorities when you had real crazy inflation in the late spring where people were focusing more on necessities and discretionary spending, and we talked about that. The point that I want to make with this, Mark, is 
you see a lot of these stocks still trading at a lot lower levels off their 52-week highs. Some are off 20, 30, 40, 50%, some even more off their 52-week high. You look at this, you would assume that earnings growth has retracted, has, it's gone negative. No, it's still positive year over year. And I'll quote again, Argus is modeling high single digit to low double digit EPS growth for this year and next year. Mm -hmm. So you have this difference between perception and reality. The reality is the underlying fundamentals of a lot of stocks, and they're just talking about the S&P 500, the general index, is actually okay. And mm -hmm. I could argue not bad at all. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the way the stocks are trading, they're telling you a different situation. And so the one thing that I like to remind clients, our listeners, is that the fundamentals of these stocks, the earnings, a lot of them are doing pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And so you would think the perception is, wow, if that stock's off 50%, and I could name some really big blue chip companies, you would assume their earnings have retracted or going negative, and it's not happening. Yeah, and another, it just made me think of just a sector or an industry like steel, right? So steel, a commodity, has come in significantly in price off the highs, but steel stocks are actually holding up relatively well uh, compared to the market, right? So it's like one of those things that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people when they think about it, but... They're still real profitable at this level. Right. Yeah. Right? I just think that we just got, sometimes you got to take a step back and say, okay, now wait a minute. I know these stocks have sold off. What's the underlying earnings? What's the fundamentals look like? Oh, their earnings are actually up year over year. Oh my gosh, they're up single digits or low double digits. Why is the stock off 40%? That's the stuff that people are going to recognize. And I think you're going to have more of that in this upcoming earnings season at the end of October. We're going to be looking at Q3 earnings. And guess what? They're probably not going to be too bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to bring the focus back to, hmm, do I want to keep my money earning 3% in a, in a, in a three-month T-bill? Or with inflation at where it's at, do I want to have a hedge? And where am I going to put my money? Yeah. That, that's my rant for the day. Yeah, and I think it's just it's important to remember just to bring it back to basics is, you know, earnings – are what drive stock prices at the end of the day, in my opinion. That's I know right. There's some, some people that might disagree with me, but I absolutely agree with that. So, and even <laughs> though it might be a slower period of growth, it's not like they're going negative. Not in relation to what their stock price has done. Right. I just want to kind of bring that back. The fundamentals, the underlying fundamentals are not horrible right now. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Back um, to you. All right, so financial planning topic of the week, uh, on to another controversial subject that we talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago is uh, the student loan forgiveness. From this the is Obama a hot administration. one. Yeah, it is. It's a hot potato. So I'm kind of sticking with the administration's plan to forgive 10,000 of federal student loans uh, for the, the topic this week, since it's just such a like polarizing subject, right? It's like you have people that love it and people that hate it. There's like no in between. Right? Oh, yeah. you and pick, I love pick that, your team. I love how the people try to provide analogies to other things that are not apples to apples. Yeah. I'm not going to give specifics, which is funny because it's, ah, it's not apples to apples. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. Um, so I thought it would be helpful for people to kind of understand the data behind the federal student loans that they can come to their own conclusions about this plan. And Nick Majuli uh, from uh, Ritholtz, who writes the blog uh, of Dollars and Data, 
wrote a blog post titled who holds the student debt so this should be interesting yeah so let's just give some data behind all of this okay. so how much student debt is there? According to the most recent estimates, there's 1.75 trillion in student loan debt across more than 43 million borrowers. This means that roughly one in six adults in the US, which is 17%, have student loan debt with the average balance being around $41,000. 41,000. It's not a small number. That's the average. The average. And again, you have people on both ends of the spectrum. But according to this, yes, $41,000. Who is the debt owed to? To no one's surprise, the U.S. government. According to the Office of Federal Student Aid, $1.62 trillion, or 93%, of the student loan debt is federal student loans. The remaining $131 billion, or 7%, is owed to private lenders, according to a Q3 2021 report from Measure 1. Therefore, for all practical purposes, the student loan problem is a federal loan problem, which I don't think was any surprise to anybody. Who are the borrowers? When it comes to student loan debt, total borrowing is split basically 50-50 between undergraduate and graduate programs. However, after adjusting for population size, it's graduate students who have the highest debt loads. On a per capita basis, the typical graduate student has roughly twice as much debt as the typical undergraduate student. And since we know that the average public university, students borrow $32,880 to attain, uh, excuse me, attain a bachelor's degree, we can infer that the average graduate student borrows about double this, 66000 to obtain their graduate degree. Despite this, graduate students have the lowest default rates among all student borrowers. Who has the highest default rates? Undergraduates who attend for-profit institutions. It's not completely clear why undergraduates at for-profit institutions have the highest default rates, but debt load may be a factor. Nearly half of all undergraduate borrowers at for-profit institutions hold 40000 or more in student loan debt. However, this is not the norm. The vast majority of undergraduate borrowers hold less than 40000 in loan debt. From these figures, it is clear that those with the highest debt loads are typically graduates and undergraduates for profit institutions. Who does the Biden plan impact the most? The plan claims that any individual making more than $125,000 per year or any household making more than $250,000 per year would not be eligible for any forgiveness. After analyzing the 2019 survey of consumer finances, Nick discovered that only the top 5% of households with student loans would be excluded based on their income. Okay. When examining net worth, Biden's program would definitely help those on the lower end of the wealth spectrum that are struggling. Nevertheless, those with student loans and a college degree are, for the most part, doing better than those with no debt and no college degree. So once again, the policy comes off as of benefiting many of those who are already doing better than the vast majority of households. Why are we trying to cancel student debt loans in the first place? Is it all that bad? Most individuals with debt tend to be getting their money's worth. As this research illustrates, and we'll have Jenna throw this chart up on the YouTube page, those with higher debt loads earn more than those with lower debt loads. This suggests that most individuals see a return on their student loans in the form of a higher paying career. I've checked other data sources and found that the same, found the same thing. 
Those with more student loan debt typically have higher incomes. This is partially explained by professional schools, i.e. law, medicine, etc., that require high borrowing now for hopefully high income later. And you can see by, excuse me, just looking at this chart, you know, the more student debt people have, the higher their average earnings are, right? Correct. And that makes sense. It does so make I sense. I don't think that should surprise anybody. No. Um, so those are kind of the basic statistics behind it. And I guess my question for you is, not that it really matters, but is there a, is there a better solution? I know people have thrown out there making federal student loans, uh, loan repayment tax deductible. Um, I've heard of being able to declare bankruptcy on, on student loans, because that's the, that's the one thing that you can't declare in bankruptcy is you can't get rid of your student loans. There's people that get their social security docked still because they have student loans. So that's an interesting thing to me, but what's your opinion on this? It's hard because there's people who have uh, saved to pay for or paid down their loans that aren't benefiting from this. And, you know, you're kind of picking winners and losers in, in that respect, which I think is really hard. Mm -hmm. I think the crux of it is we need to identify that why higher education and medical inflation over the past 20 years has been six to seven percent annualized per year and all the other areas of our economy are nowhere near that mm -hmm. and if you have an area with that type of inflation with easy money to get what's going to keep happening yeah. the price is going to keep going up and so um this is going to be a very unpopular opinion but i think there has to be some pressure on these universities to be like what are you doing with your endowments because guess what? It's been raining the past three years. And mm -hmm. what have you done? All right. And if you're not going to use it when it's raining the last three years, what's it there for? All right. And if they're not using those types of funds to bring down their cost, but like any other business, if you can get away with charging it, they're going to do it. All right. So for me, this is more of an issue of access, easy access to funds and the inflation rate on the cost. That's what has to get tackled. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and it's again, a very it's, unpopular opinion. I hate to say it. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a tough, a tough situation. And it's like any other decision, though, you know, with the government, I think. But it's just much more magnified since so many American households have student loan debt that you're never going to create a policy that is going to make everybody happy. Absolutely not. You know, Um so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't want to get into my, my personal opinion about it. But, yeah, there's some people that, you know, they have $10,000 left of student loans and they're, you know, they're having a party right now. But there's people that are like, hey, I had 50000 in debt and I paid it all off and now I get nothing. Where's my ten grand? Right. That's so another an idea is like a, a lifetime educational tax credit that um, that I think Nick in the article at some point went over. Yeah, that's an idea. Um, that everybody would get. But. My, my focus is you got to attack the issue at its core. And I'm not educated enough to explain why higher education is at that inflation rate the past 20, 30 years. I can't explain that because mm -hmm. I don't get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. And I think a lot of it is the access problem, the access to federal student loans. So easy. So easy. And again, and think back to, you know, like COVID. Supply the, and demand. Yeah. They only have so many spots. PPP loans were pretty easy. So everybody went off, went after the, the cheap. The cheap yeah. money, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's an access problem, and you know, there's not new colleges 
popping up all over the country. Maybe so. it's, just, it's just a supply and demand. They can charge more because they only got X amount of slots every year for the incoming class. Raise the price. It's just at some point that inflation rate is not sustainable. No. Yeah, it's going to break. It's not, it's not sustainable. Yeah. So again, hope everyone uh, enjoyed uh, that data. Um, just want to provide people with some statistics before uh, making a decision or hopping over on Twitter and Facebook and putting your opinion <laughs> be, be out fun. on the subject. It'd be fun. Um, anything else, Matt, before we leave it here for the week? No, sir. Okay. Um, I don't think I have anything else. So thanks everybody for listening to episode number 166 of the independent advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and Matt with the first game of the NFL season tonight, who are you picking to win the Rams or the bills? Definitely the bills, the bills. Okay. Bills fans. I am this week. And <laughs> <laughs> everyone enjoy your weekend and we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealth.com management.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.